Good morning. Welcome to church, everyone. Well, as the children make their way downstairs, I'll just let you know we're continuing our series in the book of Isaiah this morning. (laughs) We're actually reaching a bit of a milestone in our series in Isaiah this morning for a couple of different reasons. I have noticed a few uh, new faces, so quick, quick recap in case anybody is catching us mid-series. Remember, the book of Isaiah speaks to the little nation of Judah, just half of the kingdom of Israel, and it's, uh, it's unfolding during a time when Judah is caught between warring superpowers all around him. And the first half of the book that we've covered, chapters 1 to 35, dealt with the threat from a superpower called Assyria. And then the second half of the book, chapters 40 through to 66, by and large will deal with the threat from a superpower called Babylon. And both of these, these blocks of Isaiah, they're made up of what most of us are very familiar with right now, prophetic preaching. Isaiah has a very uh, specific style. And this week and next week, we're in the in-between chapters, um, kind of like the hinge that co- connects two panels or the spine. Chapters 36 through to 39. 36, 37, and 38 are going to resolve the Assyrian crisis, and then chapter 39 is going to anticipate the Babylonian crisis. It's a little bit like a out of the frying pan into the fire kind of situation for Judah. But these four transition chapters are a, a, a markedly different style as well. Isaiah takes a, a, a bit of a break from his prophetic preaching and uh, their narrative. These, uh, these chapters are fairly dramatic, too. Uh, it's really describing a showdown. I will say it's, it's a good thing everybody got an extra hour of sleep last night. <laughs> because we're actually going to cover three chapters this morning. We're taking a big bite out of Isaiah. Um, it's actually the longest passage that we're going to do in this whole series. And I know we've already done a couple of long ones. I was expecting a couple groans. Well done, I didn't hear any. Um, so I'm going to read the chapters one at a time. And I'll just, uh, in, a, in a bit, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of the first chapter, chapter 36. But the others, we'll just read them as we get to them. So remember this context, um, this geopolitical unrest this threat to the sovereignty of Judah. It's all to point the, just how far Judah has strayed from God's plan for them. It's, it's all to point out this, the foolish hope that Judah has put in all sorts of unreliable idols. Their alliance with Egypt. Just rather than return to God, Judah has been looking to all sorts of idols, their own strength, their own abilities, really trying to muster their way out of this. 
And Isaiah has been warning them that these efforts will be in vain. They will be taken into exile. Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, will fall. And while Assyria has been agitating, expanding their territory, we know from the history books that it's actually Babylon that takes Jerusalem. So these in-between chapters, this narrative is going to help explain how that all happens, that transition. Are we good? All right. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, we will read Isaiah chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, (laughs) is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without Yahweh that I have come up against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please, speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has Any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? 
Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household in Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time in your word this morning. May you help us see what you want us to see and to hear what you want us to hear in this passage, that we may come to know you a little bit better. Amen. Now, let's, um, let's remember what we went through last week in chapter 35. Uh, if you recall, Utah took us through that chapter, and that chapter ended with this verse, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Remember, in chapter 35, we had a glorious vision of the end. That beautiful garden that awaits us. And so chapter 36 comes in with a bit of a record scratch. Isaiah changed gears by grinding the gears a little bit sometimes. But don't lose sight of what we, let, we read in chapter 35. We're going to need that to get through 36 to 38. So keep your ultimate destination in mind. That's what we saw in chapter 35. That's, in fact, how we are to live in light of our final destination. Because we know where we're headed in the end. As Christians, we live in light of the promise of that garden, the promise of heaven. So we're going to unpack each of these three chapters this morning. In this chapter, in chapter 36, we'll see how easily we can feel condemned in our sin. Then in chapter 37, we'll see that God does not abandon us to our sin. And then finally, in chapter 38, we'll see that God grants us the faith to turn away from our sin. The scene in chapter 36 is this. The king of Assyria, his name is Sennacherib, has Jerusalem surrounded by his mighty army. His army's ripped through the region, conquering every nation and destroying every fortified city in its path. Verses 1 through 3 set up the stage. We're told Sennacherib has defeated every army in his path to get to Jerusalem, just laid waste to them in his territorial invasion. He's plowed through all of Judah's cities. In fact, he's just obliterated Lachish, Jerusalem's last line of defense. So Sennacherib sends his envoy from there, the Rabshakeh. This is his field commander. And he sent him to speak to the king of Judah, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah has delegated his own messengers to go and meet with him. We're told they're Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. Now, verse 4, all the way through to the end of the chapter, is the conversation between the king's envoys. Basically, the Rabshakeh is sent to deliver this message to Hezekiah. We can do it the easy way. 
you surrender. Or we can do it the hard way. The Assyrian army just pulverizes you. And he presents a pretty convincing case. It's a pretty demoralizing case if you're hoping to set up a defense. The field commander presents a case like a skilled and devious lawyer. He has four arguments. One, Egypt's not going to rescue you. Just forget that. Two, God's not going to help because you turned your back on God. Three, you can't defend yourselves. Even if we were to give you 2,000 horses, you couldn't place a rider on each one of them. He's pretty persuasive. But the most devastating argument is his fourth. The Rabshakeh states, it's Yahweh who sent Assyria against Judah. Assyria is God's instrument against his own people. This last argument is the most convicting, the most terrifying, mainly because it's true. In many ways, the Assyrian spokesperson is giving voice to what Isaiah has been saying throughout the entire book so far, isn't he? Look at verse 4. Out of the gates, he asks, On what do you rest this trust of yours? And then again in verse 5, In whom do you now trust? I mean, these are the questions that we've been exploring throughout our time in Isaiah. In whom do you place your trust? Egypt. We covered that one. In, in your past, in your strength, your abilities, your own idols. This has been the enduring question as we've gone through Isaiah. In fact, this fourth argument is so devastating that Hezekiah's representatives ask the Rabshakeh to hush, switch to Aramaic, because they don't want the people behind them in Jerusalem who are standing on the wall to know what he's saying. They know it's that devastating of an argument. But their plea backfires, and the Rabshakeh addresses the people of Jerusalem directly in verses 13 to 20. He speaks to the people on the wall who are peering over, trying to see what is happening. The Rabshakeh is a skilled orator. He shows his powers of persuasion are honed. He tells the people of Jerusalem not to trust Hezekiah, but to trust Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And he contrasts their fate under a drawn-out siege in which they'll be so starved they'll have to eat their own excrement to the fate under Assyrian rule where basically he makes it sound like they'll all get to eat, drink, and be merry. Now, unfortunately for him, though, the Rabshakeh does make one mistake. It's a slip-up, maybe, but it will prove to be fatal to him. In verse 18, he goes from asserting God is unwilling to help Judah to saying that God is unable to protect Judah from Assyria. This isn't a good call. It's not a good idea to mock God. We'll see in chapter 37 that Hezekiah knows this well. And we'll see that the Rabshakeh is about to learn this well, the hard way, as it were. But for now, let's look at how Jerusalem responds. They actually show more backbone than we've come to expect of them. Verse 21 tells us they were silent. So they didn't panic. They didn't argue. They didn't take him up on his offer. 
sometimes silence is strength. You can apply that to social media as well. (laughs) Chapter 36 closes with his envoys coming to report what was said back to Hezekiah with their clothes torn as a visceral clue of how it went. Not well. So here's a question for us to ponder. Are the Rabshakeh's four arguments true? I mean, do his arguments remind you of anyone? I think we've seen, right? It sounds a lot like Isaiah. But what's the difference? The Rabshakeh says, this is why you're doomed. God has turned away from you. He's forsaken you. That's not Isaiah's argument. This is the devil's argument. You're condemned by your sin. This is a fundamentally different conclusion. It's a twisted version of the message as only the devil knows how to twist the truth. Isaiah has been pleading for them to turn to God. It's not hopeless. Remember that final destination. God will redeem his people. The whole point of the downfall of Judah is to strip these people of their idols so they may turn back to God. This is the ultimate test for Jerusalem. The enemy is now at the gate. The enemy showed up, but their allies did not. None of their plans or their schemes have worked out. They're out of moves. Who will they finally turn to? Well, they finally turn to God. There's nowhere else to go. Capitulation, surrender are the only options. So who will it be? Will they surrender to the enemy or will they surrender to God? No matter who you are, no matter what you believe, what you've accomplished, how much wealth you've accumulated, Every last one of us is headed towards this exact same decision, this exact fork in the road. All of our lives and the lives of everyone who's ever lived, who will ever live, we'll all be confronted with this same final choice. In the end, who will you surrender to? To the enemy who is stalking you and preying on you and enticing you with his lies? Or will you surrender to God who has been patiently waiting for you to return to him so that he can give you rest for your soul? Don't ever be fooled into thinking that this option is no longer available to you. But you don't have to wait until your deathbed either. I strongly recommend you don't, because you don't know the day or the hour. But you can choose now. Choose God. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. There is no eat, drink, and be merry option. That's the path to hell. Sin never delivers on its promises. And mercifully, we're never without the option to turn back to God. So do it now, even in your own heart. Let's take a look at chapter 37. Let's see how Hezekiah responds to this test. 
You can follow along in your seats as I read chapter 37. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself in sackcloth and went into the house of Yahweh. And he sent Eliakim, who was under, over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that Yahweh your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that Yahweh your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says Yahweh, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, the king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising you that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my father destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvim, the king of Hina, and the king of Iva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of Yahweh and spread it before Yahweh. And Hezekiah prayed to Yahweh. O Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations of their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Yahweh, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Yahweh. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that Yahweh has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height 
its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before its growth. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap the plant and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares Yahweh. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home to live at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esharhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So, how does Hezekiah respond? Is he dismissive? Is he deluded, defiant? No. He's humbled. He's heavy-hearted. Even maybe hopeful. He certainly knows where his hope is found. And given the track record of Judah and its kings throughout Isaiah, this is surprising, right? Our expectations are low. So in verse 1, Hezekiah humbles himself. He also tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth. He seeks God by going to the temple. He acknowledges this is a rebuke. He sees that this is a mess of his own doing. Verse 2, he sends for Isaiah. It's about time he aligned himself with the prophet. Verse 4, he uses prayer. He asks Isaiah to pray, and later he prays himself. And he prays that God would respond to those who mock him. His prayer is oriented towards God's glory, not his own. And that's is a good, good formula for prayer. This is actually an exemplary response to a difficult situation. Humble yourself. Don't try to rely on your own strength. Seek the word of the Lord. If you don't have your own personal prophet on staff, you can always open the Bible. 
Three, pray. We've heard from the king of Assyria spokesperson. We've heard from the king of Judah spokesperson. Now we hear from the king of kings spokesperson, Isaiah. Verse 5 through 7, God responds through Isaiah, don't worry about this king of Assyria and his young men. He's going to hear a rumor which will lead him home and he'll fall by the sword. Verses 8 through 13, since the envoy didn't scare Hezekiah into surrender, the king of Assyria pens his own letter, dispenses of the intermediary, and tries to escalate the intimidation. Verses 14 to 20, Hezekiah receives this letter, and he responds by returning to the house of the Lord. And he also dispenses of his intermediary, and he prays himself laying the letter out before the Lord. It's a beautiful prayer. He pleads with God that he would save his people for his own glory. This king of Judah, Hezekiah, is finally worshiping Yahweh out of a contrite heart. He's praying that God's name would be known and glorified. I mean, it's a good prayer that we would do well to emulate. It was King Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz. It was his refusal to turn to God that led Judah ever deeper into this mess. But here we see that immediately after turning to God, finally, Hezekiah hears God's response through Isaiah. And now if you're ever prone to doubt the power of prayer, open your Bibles back up. Isaiah 37, verse 11. Take out that pencil. Underline the verse, even if it's the Pew Bible. Whoever reads it will do well to see this underlined. (laughs) Draw stars in the margin. Because you have prayed to me. So why is God going to change the course of the geopolitical drama that is unfolding between these warring superpowers? Because you have prayed to me. God has ordained it that he should use the power of the prayer of his people to rule the world. God does not hold back in his response. There are three parts to his response. First, he addresses Sennacherib, then he addresses Hezekiah, then he comes back, loops back to Sennacherib. The first part of this oracle, verse 22 to 29, is terrifying if you're Sennacherib. Then again, we actually already knew where it was headed because just as chapter 35 told us where we're headed, verse 7 of chapter 37 had told us where Sennacherib was headed. He's already told us Sennacherib's fate. He will be felled by the sword. But first, he's going to put him back in his place. God basically says, wait, you think that you were able to win all those victories on your own strength? No, I had ordained it long ago. I'm the one who made them like grass and gassed up your lawnmower. Those were my victories, not yours. And not only do you take credit for them, but you mock me. So now I'm going to send you back from where you came. Then in the second part of God's response to Hezekiah's prayer, he addresses Hezekiah directly, verses 30 to 32. He gives Hezekiah an assurance. This is how you'll know that I'm being faithful to you. 
Here's what you can expect in the next three years. Increasing levels of bountiful crops as a blessing unto his people for being faithful to him. They finally turn to him. He's going to bless them for it. Even if it is the last possible second for them to turn to God. The enemy is at the gate. They're out of options. They had no other choice. But God doesn't shut the door on them. No, he says, finally, I've been waiting all along for you. This is what I wanted for you. I will save you and bless you for turning to me. And look at the last part of verse 32. Does God do this grudgingly? No. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's his greatest delight. Can anyone in this place relate to this? When we sin, we start to believe that God can't love us anymore. That he no longer cares about us, that he's disgusted with our weakness. That he's happy to abandon us to our sin. We start to believe he washes his hands of us. But no, no matter how long, how bad, how many times We've sinned and rejected him. The second we turn back to him, there's nothing that delights him more than to embrace us and to forgive us and to bless us. It's the zeal of the Lord, his passion. What a truly amazing God we have. He'll chastise us, but he'll never abandon us. He'll always embrace us when we turn back to him in repentance and faith. Now, there's a third part to his response to Hezekiah's prayer, verses 33 to 35. He turns his attention back to Sennacherib. Sorry, Sennacherib, it's not going to happen. You're not taking my people. You're leaving them alone and heading home where your fate awaits you. And I'm doing this for my own sake, not because of anything my people did to deserve this but because it glorifies me. And it takes the mere three verses left in chapter 37 for God to dispense himself of the infamous king of Assyria and his mighty army. A single blow, 185,000 soldiers struck down. The Greek historian Herodotus records that Sennacherib's army suffered a rat infestation that brought in the plague. That would explain such a devastating blow. Whatever the instrument, the swift decimation sends Assyria packing. They sound the retreat, head home, where Sennacherib is struck down by the sword of his own son. Just don't. Don't end up on the wrong side of God. You're never without the option to get back on side with him. So align your will with his will for you. Hezekiah has managed to lead Jerusalem faithfully through an incredible trial. It earns him a great reputation as a king. If you read about him in 2 Kings, I mean, I love this narrative of 36 and 37. In particular, I love this Hezekiah. It's a wonderful, dramatic account. I'm left with a question. Where exactly did this Hezekiah, this Judah, this Jerusalem, where did, where did they come from? Quiet strength, 
faithfulness and their lament, godly prayers. These are not the same people that Isaiah has been railing against since the beginning of the book, surely. Hang on to that question. Where does this faith come from? As we read chapter 38. I'm actually just going to read the first eight verses. And uh, we'll cover the rest in a bit. Save it for later. Isaiah 38. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh and said, Please, O Lord, O Yahweh, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of Yahweh came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from Yahweh that Yahweh will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the 10 steps by which it had declined. Now, this chapter 38 doesn't quite fit. The timing seems a bit fuzzy. It's actually occurred before chapter 36 and 37, before the whole episode with Sennacherib. Verse 6 makes that clear. It puts chapter 36 and 37 in the future. So this is a flashback. It's deliberately taken out of sequence in the retelling by Isaiah. Maybe just so that it fits in better with chapter 39, we'll see next week. Maybe there's something else going on as well. It seems that Isaiah wants us to know where Hezekiah is headed before he tells us this particular episode. What we know is that at some point, Hezekiah was on the verge of death. I mean, it's pretty clear, right? Verse 1 says, Hezekiah, God says to Hezekiah, set your house in order, you're going to die. What's meant by set your house in order? How do you interpret that? It's not a good sign, is it? Write a will, patch up your differences with your loved ones, Give whatever you want to pass on to your offspring, all those things. But above else, if you ever hear those words, set your house in order, I'm begging you, search your heart and ensure you are in right standing with God. And to Hezekiah's credit, he does that, sort of. I mean, he's very imperfect. This version of Hezekiah makes more sense to us, right? This is more in line with our expectations of a king of Judah in Isaiah's day. There was no doubt about his diagnosis. It's a desperate point. Everything seems hopeless. 
He cried, he prayed. It seems this is how Hezekiah rolls. I mean, if he were to diffuse a bomb, I think he'd wait till the clock said 00.01 before he cut that wire. He prays to God in verse 2 and 3. As weakly as you can, it's, a, it's not a great prayer. It's nothing like the one in chapter 37. Remember how I walked in faithfulness and have done what is good in your sight? I don't know that that's a great approach. Even if he wasn't as bad as his father, King Ahaz, it still appears he spent most of his life rejecting God and pursuing idols. His prayer doesn't express properly what it is he wants. We're even told his crying is bitter. I mean, this is not coming from a good heart posture at all. But you see, God helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And God himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, we're told. God searches hearts and intercedes for the saints according to his own will. Hezekiah is not turning to an idol. He's turning to God. However weakly, it's the smallest possible scrap of faithfulness. But it's not the strength of our faith that matters, but the strength of God's faithfulness. So God responds through Isaiah, and he's going to give him 15 more years This is the kind of miraculous healing that so many faithful Christians pray for. Not to mention the type of prayer faithful Christians have come to accept God will not answer. But here for Hezekiah, it's not just that. There's more. Look at verse 6. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. He's not just going to save his life. It's going to save Jerusalem. This is actually when God committed to stopping Sennacherib. Back in this flashback. Isaiah is playing with the chronology and the way he's retelling the episode. It's not just the timing of when this takes place. It's also the order of the account. Listen, I'm going to read verses 21 and 22. These are the last two verses of our passage. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. And verse 22, Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of Yahweh? In this last verse, verse 22, Isaiah tells us that Hezekiah had asked for a sign, but it's back in verse 7 that we're told what the sign is. And what a sign. I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. God's going to realign the cosmos for this one. The sun is going to reverse its course for a spell to turn the shadow back on the sundial. As J. Alec Mottier noted, just as the sun was about to set on Hezekiah's life, now it will return for a time prolonging the day. But not only that, by rewinding the time on the dial of Ahaz, his father, God is erasing King Ahaz's idol worship and allowing Hezekiah to reset the course for Judah. 
by faithfully turning to God. It's an incredible miracle. God is stepping in and intervening in such a powerful way. In a way that is wildly disproportionate to the prayer that Hezekiah prayed. Right? It's hugely disproportionate. It's a weak, bitter little prayer. And a huge response. Saving his life and the capital of Judah. It's mirrored in verse 21 with the weak medical prescription to cure him. Look at that. What is this? He has to rub a fig newton on his boil. What? No wonder Hezekiah and the Jerusalemites had a newfound faith when the Assyrian army showed up at the doorstep. God had already rewound the orbit of the earth around the sun as a sign that he would not let the Assyrians breach the walls of Jerusalem. We all need to live in light of our ultimate destination. If Isaiah had retold this story chronologically, you might be tempted to believe that somehow Hezekiah had manipulated God into saving his life. In flipping the order of the narrative, Isaiah tells us what God was accomplishing before we knew where Hezekiah's faith came from. God wants to make sure that you understand he is fulfilling his own purposes. Verse 5 says God is doing this for his own glory and for the sake of the lineage of David. We have an idea of how important the lineage of David is. You see, God cannot allow the lineage of David to die off. And at this point, Hezekiah does not have an heir. God has been uniquely, from the beginning, from Genesis, uniquely preoccupied with saving the lineage from the seed of the woman that threads its way through David and all the way to Jesus, the one who will finally crush the head of the serpent and save God's people for himself. God is saving Hezekiah's life here and declaring he will free Jerusalem also, saving his people and proclaiming his glory. That is why he so disproportionately responded to Hezekiah's weak, bitter prayer with such an incredible, life-saving, miraculous healing. Isaiah flips the order to make sure there's no room for misinterpretation. This is not a successful name-it-and-claim-it prayer by Hezekiah. This is the God of the universe leading the solar system like a maestro leading an orchestra to ensure all his people including whoever follows Jesus in this room, can find their way back to him so he can finally, joyfully enfold them back into his arms. And to his credit, Hezekiah he finally gets it. We're going to read the letter that he writes in response in verses 10 to 20. I saved them for last because this is Hezekiah's love letter to God. This is his testimony. Looking backwards, as so many of us do to see God at work, he finally sees all that God has accomplished for and through him. And so he channels his inner David. He does, after all, sit on his throne and write what reads like a psalm. 
This letter helps us see how it is that Hezekiah could pray the way he did in chapter 37. He'll stumble again in chapter 39. But for now, he shows a new faith in God. This is a letter in which he acknowledges he was dead in his trespasses. He was on a hell-bound journey. He was disciplined by the hand of God. He feebly turned his gaze towards God. He laid his request at the feet of God, pleading for salvation, and he was delivered in love. He's now filled with thankfulness for an undeserved gift of salvation, and he now teaches his children about the faithfulness of our God. Listen to these points as I read to you chapter 38, verses 9 through 20. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see Yahweh, Yahweh in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I've rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upwards. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walked slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you. As I do this day, the Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Yahweh will save me. And he will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of Yahweh. It's a beautiful psalm. When, when we are first talking about this sermon and just the cohesiveness of chapters 36, 37, 38, we're wondering if 38 should be taken apart from 36 and 37. This is why I thought 38 belonged with 36 and 37. I want us all to see both Hezekiah of chapter 37 and Hezekiah of chapter 38 side by side. Yes, the Hezekiah of 37 is strong and steadfast in his faith and God responds to that faith in a powerful way. But that's not where God met him. It's not where God meets us. We don't work on perfecting our faith before we approach God. We do not need a perfect faith for God to answer our prayers. God meets us in our bitter little shriveled up faith. 
when we're worn down and beat up and barely keeping it together. That's where God meets us. He comes down to where we are. He doesn't expect us to build ourselves up to him. In fact, that's why God literally came down to meet us as a man who exemplified this perfectly by meeting people where they are in their sin. Jesus never shrank back from man or woman because of their past or of their sins. God reaches down and grants us our faith to turn away from our sin and towards him. So we have no excuse to stay in our sin. God has accomplished what Hezekiah experienced for all of us through his son, Jesus Christ. We have all received this same gift of salvation by grace through faith. Accept this gift right now. Do not stay in your sin. Turn to God from wherever you are right now. You don't have to wait until you've got it all together. No one here needs to put on their best Hezekiah 37. In this place, we are free to come authentically as Hezekiah 38. Whether we bring a fledgling little faith we don't even know what to do with yet, or whether we are scraping together the tattered remains of a shredded faith. We're all here only by the grace of God. All of us here are sinners redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. We're all just pointing each other home. We're followers of Jesus, the body of Christ. We're a fellowship reminding each other of just how glorious the garden is that awaits us. How glorious our eternal home is. What a vastly disproportionate gift it is for such undeserving wretches. We know that. So we encourage each other on along the arduous path. We get to walk it together with God illuminating the way. It's the zeal of the Lord that accomplishes this. There's nothing that delights him more than to lead us back to the garden, back to him, to lead us home. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may we be such a church where we build each other up and nourish each other's faith back to health in the word, depending entirely on your grace. May we urge each other to get our house in order and love. May we remind each other of your grace. May we trust in your faithfulness and walk in your light. It's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen.